0: So, good evening ladies and gentlemen, you're all very welcome, it's nice to spend an evening with you considering one of the great subjects of the world. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk is Philosophy and Unconditional Love and the subtitle is Is There Anybody Out There Who Could Meet My Particular Requirements? And in case some of you are still hoping The answer, (laughs) the answer is no. They don't make them like that anymore. If he or she did exist, we would probably not meet their particular requirements. In fact, nobody is made in accordance with the requirements of anybody else. Everybody is created in their own right and not to please another. So that's the good news over with. (laughs) Now, what is true love? Well, unconditional love is true love. The marriage vow, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, is a vow of unconditional love. And here is a description of true love from the imitation of Christ, with which we are probably familiar. Love knows no measure, but is fervent above measure. Love feels no burden, disdains no labours, would willingly do more than it can, complains not of impossibility, because it conceives that it may and can do all things. It is able, therefore, to do anything, and it performs and effects many things, where he that loveth not faints and lies down. Love watches and sleeping slumbers not, when weary is not tired, when straitened is not constrained, when frightened is not disturbed. But like a lovely flame and a torch all on fire, it mounts upwards and securely passes through all opposition. Whosoever loveth, knoweth the sound of this voice. So how much do we love someone? And the Shankaracharya, the man of the school of philosophy, put all its questions to, he said, The essential feature, or seed element of love, is renunciation, sacrifice, or sharing with the world. So, if we wish to know how much we love someone, we should ask ourselves not how much we need them or how much we miss them, but what are we willing to renounce or sacrifice or give up for that person? So, will we give up golf? What about our friends, our family? Will we move down the country or live in a different country for that person? Will we lay down our life? And it can be easy to give up the big things but what about giving up the little everyday things? Like the television program we really want to watch or the restaurant that we want to go to all simply to please the other person out of love for them. The real test of our love is often more in the little everyday things. And in the end, what we are willing to give up is the proof of the depth of our love for the other person. Now, what is it that is loved? And we may think that we love someone because they are attractive or intelligent or witty or generous, etc., etc. But a child may have none of these qualities and still be loved. One of the Upanishads says, It is not for the sake of the wife that the wife is loved, but for the sake of the self within. It is not for the sake of the husband that the husband is loved, but for the sake of the self within. And it is not for the sake of itself that anything at all is loved but for the sake of the self. So what is this self that is loved? It is that which is the same in all. It is consciousness, awareness. It lives in all that lives. It lives in the hearts of all beings. And when we love another, we are in fact loving ourselves in the other. Ultimately, all love is self-love. The Shankracharya says the experience of seeing the self in the other is the act of love. And when we see what is different, when we experience the difference, then the result will not be love, but pleasure or pain, attraction or repulsion, depending on what valuation we put on the difference. When we see difference, then we compare and say that that person is more lovable than this person. Now, the greatest insult you can ever make to somebody is to compare them with another person. Because everybody is lovable in their own right. And not in relation to how they compare to others. With unconditional love, comparison cannot arise. And this is why it is not useful at all to say to the current girlfriend, you are the best so far. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't go down well. We see... That which is the same with unconditional love. And then we experience true love there and then. And what's it like to see the self in another? The Shankracharya says, One who sees thus, for him the whole creation is a family. So he treats everyone in the world with love and affection. With love he wishes to impart bliss to everyone. Love is wonderful because anyone with love in his heart wants to see everyone in bliss, everyone healthy, and everyone availing freedom. Now what is the mark of unconditional love? Well, when there is unconditional love, jealousy is gone. Dissatisfaction is gone. Restlessness is gone. What was sought has been found, and contentment reigns in all circumstances. Nothing can disturb or impede the love, and thus it remains constant. We don't actually have to promise to love forever, because love, being a constant, is forever. The love is then so deep and total. We cannot imagine that we would not love the person one day. Now, if we love unconditionally, whom do we love? Well, Jesus also said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? It is impossible to love one person unconditionally. If you enjoy unconditional love, you love everybody unconditionally. So true love does not invite only a few, such as spouse or friends or family. To participate or share in it. True love invites all to the party. Absolutely everything. Even the stars and the sun and the flowers and the birds. The whole universe is invited to join in and enjoy it. So if we love unconditionally, we will love all. And just afterwards Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And to love unconditionally is to love all, and this is the perfection of man. Now, how important is love? Well, Teilhard de Chardin says, day, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness the energies of love. And then, for the second time in the history of the world, we shall have discovered fire. The Shankaracharya says, The universe manifests through love, is sustained and nourished by love, and ultimately it will merge into love. Love is the nature of the universe. It is our very nature. Pure love exists in everybody. And all strive to express it. If we love, we are happy and we are fulfilled. Love is not a part of our life, but the very essence of it. And there can never be the absence of it in our life. Absence of it would be like taking health from the body. It could not exist. If the body does not get food then there is pain. If the mind does not get the food of knowledge, then it is dark and confused. If the heart does not get love, which is food for the heart, then it is forever restless and distressed. Love is nourishment for the heart, and so the less the love in the heart, the weaker the heart is. Love is the deliverance of the heart from all its worries, all its burdens and all its misery. The heart is at rest in love and in nothing else. Now, what effect does love have on the human being? Ralph Waldo Emerson says, That love is like a certain divine rage and enthusiasm which unites him to his race, pledges him to domestic and civic relations, carries him with new sympathy into nature, enhances the power of the senses, opens the imagination, adds to its character heroic and sacred attributes, establishes marriage, and gives permanence to human society. In summary, Love turns man the creature into man the divine. Now, what effect does love have on what the one who love sees? Well, love is our radiance. And it therefore radiates onto all that is in our presence. When we love, everything shines. We shine And everything reflects our light. Its existence makes the world rich. It makes all things alive and conscious. And nature then becomes magical. Consider, when there is real love in our hearts, the toothless smile of the baby, the little toes, the chubby hands, the gurgling laughter, the perfume of the head, The pattern of hair on the crown. Now, without love, what would these be? So, what is the fundamental impediment to unconditional love? Why is it that we don't all enjoy it? And enjoy it fully? And it's a very, very, very sad answer. So, are you ready for it? The fundamental impediment to unconditional love is not other people, it's me. I am the impediment to unconditional love. I, the ego. It's not that others cannot be loved, or that they're not actually lovable, but that me will not love them. Me refuses to love them. The ego asks everybody else to love it. And in turn, it only pretends to love others. And this is our choice in life. We can have the ego or love. Only one can exist at any one point in time. The young child does not compare himself with anyone. He is not concerned with what other people are thinking of him. This me only knows itself by comparison. It only has relative existence because it is not the outcome of direct self-knowledge. In the company of others, it knows itself as taller or smaller, younger or older, brighter or duller, more or less successful, intelligent or attractive. But when alone, what is our identity? When on our own, with nobody to compare ourselves to, we don't know any more who we are. If you were on a desert island all your life on your own, you would have no basis to know whether your face was attractive or not. It is only by comparing ourselves with others that we come to any answer. Now this me has demand. The demands are not constant because me is constantly changing. So sometimes me wants more time to himself, more free time. Having achieved that, me becomes lonely and then me wants to be more involved with others. Now this me won't say out loud all its demands. So basically, our partner has to be a mind reader to know what we want. Now, it's a very interesting question. Why are all the demands not said out loud? Why don't we simply tell the other person what it is that we want or demand? And the reason is because all these demands are so mean, they're so unjustifiable... They sound selfish and appalling even to our own ears when spoken out. But that doesn't stop us trying to get them. (laughs) We, We just don't say them out loud. Now when demands are met and we're happy, we think we are getting on well with other people. But it's no more than a coincidence of desires. It's a mere accident. Now also, me needs to be valued. Me does not like others to be totally independent of me. If my beloved works long hours or meditates or goes to philosophy, then the fear arises that he or she is becoming independent of me, that they do not or will not need me. And me wants to be important to others. In fact, I want people to miss me when I'm not around. I want them to suffer in my absence. (laughs) Not too much, but enough to know that I'm important to them. So it's amazing. When you've been away from your beloved for a while and you come back, you basically ask them, did you miss me? (laughs) In other words, were you miserable? It's an incredible inquiry, isn't it? Now, when me gets old, it can feel it is useless. It feels more and more that it's not needed. The children have grown up and moved away. The firm has replaced me. The spouse may now be dead. Nobody visits much anymore. Nobody respects me. Nobody really misses me. And because me is changing, its love changes. And because me focuses on the changing in others, its love for others also changes. Me believes that the fulfilment of my demands by others will make me happy. And as a result, others are imprisoned in my love. But love with attachment produces in sequence dependency, fear, anger and then hatred. And it doesn't take long to move from dependency to hatred. If you're going to an airport and you're going away for a week and you wish to avoid paying the insane car parking fees, you decide, I'll save some money and organise somebody to bring me to the airport. But a little voice says, no. It will be safer to drive yourself. So there's that niggling doubt. Now you're heading off to Bermuda, the plane departs at 6.30, so the person has to collect you at 4.00. They happen to tell you about three days beforehand that they're a very deep sleeper. So this this now has you deeply concerned. So you inquire as to how many alarms they have, all sorts of things like that. Anyway, they're supposed to pick you up somewhere at four o'clock and there you are waiting. And at five to four, the mind begins to consider all sorts of possibilities. They've died in the night, (laughs) right? And will I just go on the holiday or will I go to the funeral? You know, questions like that. But anyway, it gets about five past four. And this unpleasant sense of dependency now begins to turn to fear. I may miss my holiday. And maybe they've got a puncture or the car's broken down. Why did do they buy that stupid Skoda? You know, all these things. And then it turns to anger. They shouldn't do this. Though. Why haven't they rung me? should tell me they're on the way, or whatever it is. And then it's hatred. If they do turn up, I'm going to kill them. (laughs) And this all takes place in about 15 minutes. Now, because we hate dependency, we limit our love so that we're not too dependent. But limited or conditional love does not satisfy our hearts. However, in order to maintain our independence, we continue to try to control or limit our love for others. Let's be careful about loving them too much. Khalil Gibran says, Think not you can direct the course of love. For love, if it finds you worthy, directs your course. You should never ever, ever, try to control love, but let love control you. Love is the natural in-between, but ordinarily between me and those that I claim to love, other things such as demands and memories of past interactions arise. And with this, all unresolved issues rise up in between the two parties, all the hurts, all the disappointments. All the jealousies and all the grievances. And because of memory, the past is superimposed on what is in front of us. And as Jesus said, having eyes they see not, having ears they hear not, neither do they understand. So in the end, a complete stranger has a better chance of a real meeting of hearts and minds with us than those whom we claim to love. Now, this me feels vulnerable and needs to be protected. But useful questions to ask are, what is it that we're trying to protect? And is it worth protecting? And what is the price for all this protection? Despite all this, it's very difficult to drop the ego. We think the ego is our only treasure. We've spent our whole life developing it. Polishing it, cultivating it, protecting it, and trying to make it attractive to others. So to drop the ego is to drop our whole life's work. However, if we, the ego, are willing to disappear, then and only then will real love blossom in our lives. Now, what are the fruits of this conditional love? The first is condemnation. There's so much condemnation, not only of others, but of ourselves. And as Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged. Now, deep down we accept others' condemnation, so that in the end we do not think ourselves worthy of love. We may doubt when someone says they love us. In fact, if someone does say that they love us, we doubt it. If they say they hate us, we accept it immediately. Isn't that amazing? We look for proof. Words aren't enough. Because we do not see ourselves as essentially lovable. As a beautiful creation of God, as lovable in our very nature. And because of this, we are unable to grow to realize our full potential. We are not an accident. We were made with a certain destiny to manifest all the glory of our essence through love and understanding. But with all this criticism of ourselves, in the end... We do not even respect ourselves. Self-abuse is the most prevalent abuse in the world today. Consider all the misery that we create for ourselves. And we, we've become such expert fault-finders in ourselves and others. Think of all the silent criticism that goes on in our heads. How embarrassed would we be if someone told us, They could read every thought in our minds. How happy would we be to be in their company? And by the way, I can read minds. (laughs) And I'm extremely disappointed in what you're thinking. I think the talk is much better than you're thinking. (laughs) Not only do we find faults... But we magnify them by becoming irritated by them, by resenting their existence. And as a result, instead of unconditional love, there is ignorance, injustice, pressure, compulsion, darkness and inequality in our lives. The second fruit of conditional love is that we create circles. So because of dependency, because my happiness depends on the behavior of others, there arises the need to control others. A limit or circle is created to provide a boundary for control. And circles may be family, or business, or friends, or golf club, or city, or province, or nation, or whatever. And all energies go to defend that circle And circles fight circles. Strife all over is the result. And if there's not active dislike or hatred for those outside our circle, then it is indifference. As a result, we ignore the obvious sufferings and plight of others. Now, those inside our circle also suffer. The restricted love within the circle ...brings an intensity or agitation into the relationships. As was said before, we try to control those in our circle... ...and instead of love amongst equals, we have a master and slave relationship... ...with one person existing solely to please the other. If this is the basis of the relationship, it can send the person to Australia or New Zealand... Just to get away from it. The reason for all those Irish people in Australia and New Zealand is not just economic. <laughs> the third fruit of conditional love is slavery. Most human beings are slaves to their families or to their circumstances. If our children do well, we are happy. If they fail, we're sad. If the sun shines, we brighten up. If it rains, we complain. Thus we want to change or control the people and the circumstances so that they'll always make us happy. And even if we do succeed in controlling them, we just become a slave to the new environment because environmental happiness is dependent happiness. And dependent happiness... ...is always full of fear deep down. The fourth fruit of conditional love... ...is that me becomes the beneficiary of my love. The love now becomes directed to the interests of smaller groups or individuals. We take it entirely for ourselves. Some say they work for the family. But it is ever only my family. Let it be for another family in order to find out how expansive the love is basically me wants the fruits of love for himself or the group he considers close to himself and the minute we say to the beloved love only me it is the beginning of attachment the beginning of possessiveness when a person is a possession We have made them into one of our items of furniture. A mere chattel. Possessions we use. And we don't like others to use them. So we don't like other people to sit in our chair in the family room. Even if we're not in the family room, they shouldn't be sitting in my chair. Because it's my chair. And they always move the angle of it in relation to the television. And I have developed that angle over the years. We try to be independent ourselves, but make the other person a possession of ours. And what others do exactly the same. There's no independence, but there are considerable degrees of slavery. And if we bind others to ourselves, then we are bound to them. So the slave master becomes enslaved by the slave. The fifth fruit of conditional love is loneliness. Having created a separate identity for ourselves, we now experience loneliness. And we're afraid of loneliness. And this sends us in search of people to love. People whose presence and affection for us can make us feel complete. Feeling lonely We attach ourselves to people and organizations just to escape from our loneliness. And the problems arising from that which we are attached to occupy our minds so much that we lose sight of the loneliness that underlies them all and disregard it. So we disregard the cause and occupy ourselves with the effects. The cause therefore lives on. And deep down, really deep down, we remain lonely. People then continuously seek company. They just cannot be by themselves. They need others. And any type of company will do. As long as they can avoid the company of themselves. So they sit in front of the TV and watch a ridiculous program for two hours rather than be with themselves for that two hours. They might read a useless novel or the same magazine over again, just to kill time. Then they say they have no time. Aloneness, and the original meaning of the word aloneness, is all oneness. So when the two words come together, all oneness, you get aloneness. And that's what aloneness means. It means to be all one. So true aloneness is our very nature, but we're not aware of it. We are all one. Loneliness or separation is the product of not knowing the truth about ourselves. Separating ourselves, we create loneliness instead of seeing aloneness as bliss. Silence and peace are misunderstood as loneliness. Loneliness is a gap caused by separation. True aloneness, true all-oneness, is total unity. And only with true aloneness can we fully relate, whereas with loneliness we cannot relate. Lonely people can only exploit Because they are in need. They use others for their own happiness. And this is a horrible exploitation. To use another human being for your own happiness. The lonely cannot love. Because they only take. Only the alone are complete. And being complete, they have everything to give. The sixth fruit of conditional love is demanding our rights. Now, the rights of one constitute the duty of another. But when we regard other people's duties as our rights, we just whet our appetite for rights which increase desire and simply fuel anger and discontent. If other people do not fulfill our demanded rights, then people step backwards. They withdraw from the relationships. And then we say they've grown apart. But actually they haven't grown. They've declined. Now, what would it be like to live with unconditional love in our hearts? What would life be like? Well, the first thing is you become unpredictable. Because unconditional love makes you spontaneous, rebellious. In fact, you become a true revolutionary. So that you're no longer predictable. We follow love, but not the crowd. And love takes us to where the crowd never goes. We surprise ourselves and we surprise others. Unconditional love is considerate, but not concerned. Whatever the need, it fulfills it. If it needs to be tough, it is. And if it needs to be tender, then it also is. It gives us insights into people, because to love is to know the other person from the inside. And thus nobody can ever deceive us, or exploit us, or oppress us ever again. The second fruit of unconditional love is limitlessness. Unconditional love knows no end. Just like when a pebble is thrown into water, the ripples keep on spreading outwards all the way until the ripples are everywhere. The ripples must start at the very centre where the pebble drops into the water. These ripples cannot start further out. And in the same way, true love must start with loving ourselves and overflows out of our being until it embraces the whole universe. Love cannot start with loving others. No self-love means no love at all. True love overflows from the individual and it cannot be stopped. Sharing the love is not a decision, then, on our part, for it simply cannot be contained. True love is more powerful than we are, and in truth, we are its servant. We then fill the whole universe with love, and all this arises from the dropping of a single pebble into the water. Unconditional love does not know duty, it only knows sharing, the joy of giving what is ours to others and seeing their delight. With unconditional love, we always know that there is more to give, so we never say, I've done my bit now. There is no sense of obliging another. In truth, the other has obliged me by receiving my gift of love By allowing me to be the giver of love to them. And with this love, we realize that all the differences are superficial. Fundamentally, we are all one. That we are, in truth, alone. And as a result, conflict, disharmony and division all come to an end in our lives. The third fruit of unconditional love is real freedom. Most of us are afraid of real freedom. Real freedom, being freedom from the ego, from separate existence, means that there is unity or aloneness. And it takes great courage to be alone. As said before, when we are lonely, we long to bond with someone. For some bondage in our lives. But when we are in bondage, then we long for freedom. Now, real freedom means knowing that you are complete, that you are enough unto yourself, that in truth, you need nobody. When you know that, Then we can share, but we're not dependent. We lose nothing in our sharing because we are complete. And if no one is there, we're still complete and we're just as happy. Unconditional love gives us freedom from knowing. With knowing we want tomorrow to be according to our own ideas. And so we don't allow love to unfold In its own way. With this freedom from knowing. We meet the beloved always for the first time. Then we never take them for granted. The relationship is a continuing journey. An exploration of love. In love. Without end. With knowing we become blind to each other. We stop looking. Because we know them. But life never repeats itself. And so everything is always new. And with everything ever new, the love remains constant, and yet it is ever new. The love then is a constant adventure of the ever new. Unconditional love provides freedom from our own ego, because in love, We forget ourselves. It's the same with drink and drugs and sport and entertainment and sleep. In all of them, we forget ourselves. And this is why we seek them so much. Now, we sometimes try to forget the ego through being busy. But we cannot keep busy all the time. And most of our lives is trying to keep away from this monster the ego that we have created. However, in love, there is self-forgetting. And with the disappearance of me, there is no question of attachment, clinging or bondage. Love is free from attachment, and to be possessed by love is to go free. Initially, only the beloved exists. And then one grows and goes beyond that to when the division of the lover and the one loved is gone. And in truth, at that stage, one has gone beyond relationship between two parties to the unity of all. Then and only then is our happiness complete. And there must have been moments for each one of us perhaps only brief moments, when we were not there. And only love was there, from no centre, from nowhere to nowhere. And this true love is so overwhelming that we cannot remain ourselves. We drown in it and disappear in an ocean of love, an ocean of bliss. The fourth fruit of unconditional love is that with unconditional love, all the virtues flourish and grow in our being. We are actually transformed by love. It's not possible to remain the same when unconditional love comes into your heart. We are transformed. And with this transformation, all benefit. So with love in the heart, there will be compassion. And forgiveness truthfulness and impartiality generosity nonviolence and equanimity justice service purity kindness humility tenderness and much much more and such a person a person with true love in their heart and whom all the virtues have flourished such a person is impossible not to love. So develop these virtues and the world will love you. The fifth fruit of unconditional love is transformation. The lover is transformed by loving. Happiness reigns and virtue flourishes. And there's a very interesting phenomenon. Beside the obvious ways the beloved benefits from our love, there's another interesting aspect. Because of non-reaction by us, because offense is not taken by us, it must return to the giver. The person giving the offense then becomes aware of it. Then... There is the possibility of change because they are left with the offence which they have given and its effects. If you take offence from another, you simply encourage them to give you more. Never take offence from another. The sixth fruit of unconditional love is true satisfaction. This is somewhat controversial, but that doesn't make it any less true. When you've had a good meal, you can walk away satisfied. You don't leave the table full of regret. You leave satisfied. So, when it is complete, we are left with satisfaction, not a hunger for more. If we leave the table hungry... We have not been feeding at the table to our satisfaction in satisfaction. Now that is absolutely clear with regard to food. But it is exactly the same when it comes to love. When it is complete, when our love is complete, we can let the beloved go. And be fully satisfied. So in true love. In absolute complete and pure love. There is no grief. None at all. And I've told this story before. But Leon McLaren. The man who founded the school of philosophy. Was the single greatest human being that I have ever met. And so I consider myself to be incredibly fortunate. To have spent Time in his company. And nobody but nobody has awakened love in my heart like that man awakened it in me. And when he died, there was no grief. Not a tear, no anguish, nothing. The only emotion that arose in the heart on his death was gratitude. Gratitude for having known So, real love, unconditional love, will free you from all grief. The seventh fruit of unconditional love is purposeless. Whenever we are truly happy, we are happy for no reason at all. It's not related to anything. If you see a child abounding in happiness and you say to them, why are you so happy? They say, I just am. <laughs> and they are absolutely right. Whereas when somebody says, why are you so happy? We say, well, I just won the Euro lottery or something <laughs> pathetic like that. True happiness is not related to anything. We have reasons to be unhappy. But we have no reasons to be happy. And it's the same with love. We have reasons to hate. But no reason to love. Because it's just natural. We do not love someone because of A, B or C quality in them. We just love them. Now how may one grow in love? Well, love knows no full stop. Love is more like a ladder. It starts with one person and it ends with the all. It starts with individuality and ends with universality. To be afraid to love is to be afraid to grow. All of the things of the creation are means. But love is an end. Love gives us the first proof... That life is not meaningless. Those who say that our life is meaningless are those who have not known love. What they are actually saying is that love is missing from their life. So the first thing, so that we may grow in love, is gratitude. When we start giving love with a deep sense of gratitude, we will become a master of love, rather than a beggar for love. As a giver of love, we will begin to receive love. And the more love we give, the more love we will receive. Being grateful alone is the key to opening the heart. All that we have, we have been given. Life, intelligence, love, earth, Air, fire, water, space, the company of others, the beauty of nature. None of it is our work. So take a long walk and consider silently all that has been given to you. Then you will be grateful and a heart full of gratitude naturally fills with love. The second factor that will help us to grow in love is true knowledge. And there's a need for true knowledge. The Shankracharya says, The expression of love depends on the measure and truth of knowledge. Only if one could change one's centre of understanding that all observed things and the observer are the same, then one would have achieved all changes. For the view of the world, of the beauty and the action, will all change diametrically. And this is the real knowledge, that all is one. This is all that we need to know. Know this and love becomes unconditional. See everything from the center of me, the ego, and love departs from one's life. See everything from the centre of our true self, and the life is pervaded by love. The belief in the ego, in separate existence, is erroneous. It's a mistake. Know that you and I and all others are one in truth, and love arises naturally. The third factor to help us grow in love is detachment. And attachment replaces attachment and this makes everything and every action blissful. With attachment our relationships stop being personal. Imagine having relationships which weren't personal. When not personal, the cycle of action and reaction ceases. Now we may think it would not be attractive if our relationships were not personal. But when relationships stop being personal, they become universal. And the universal relationship is always much, much, much greater than a personal relationship. In truth, all relationships are universal. So mother is universal. Son is universal friend is universal. And as universals, they're perfect. And then all our relationships become vehicles for the perfect expression of love, and thus they fully satisfy. And the fourth way that we may grow in love is to meditate. Love appears in relationships, but it begins in aloneness, love begins in unity and meditation brings us to aloneness and so meditation brings us to the source of love. This is the magic of meditation. It will bring you from division and disharmony to the complete and total source of all love. The shankracharya says In order to build up one's reserves and to create much force out of the little available force one needs to go deep within oneself. When one wants to throw an arrow, one needs to draw the bow backwards, and the more one draws it back, the farther the arrow travels. The same applies to this emotional aspect of life. All the energy in the emotional world is available limited. But it could be made unlimited if the direction of the individual is turned inside. This drawing back is going into peace, so that the possibility for agitation may ease and widen. The more one goes deeper within the self, one comes out with extra love and affection and also resolution. This love always expands first within oneself and then within one's family and with associates and then in general to people and the nations and to the world. From self to family, society and nation and so on. As I said before, this is the miraculous aspect of meditation. It's not the same with sleep. However much you love your wife when you go to sleep, you will find that when you wake up in the morning, you don't love her any more or any less. Because love doesn't grow or expand in sleep. But it does in meditation. The man or woman who starts a practice of meditation comes out of that practice 30 minutes later with more love in their heart. So, to give a summarized comparison of conditional and unconditional love, just in case you're still interested in the conditional love, try I nail it once and for all. Conditional love is possessive. Unconditional love enjoys fully without possessing. Conditional love interferes in the other person's freedom, creating bondage. Unconditional love gives freedom and never imposes on the other person. Conditional love is directed towards an object. Limited to an object, it excludes everything else. Unconditional love, however, is a state of being and directionless. It is a radiation out to all. Conditional love uses the others as a means. And unconditional love Recognizes the other as an end in themselves. Conditional love is jealous and suspicious. Unconditional love knows no fear and it never suspects. Conditional love is to do with my needs. And unconditional love is to do with sharing. Conditional love is an exchange. And unconditional love is a gift. Conditional love is yours. And unconditional love is not yours, for there is none of you in it. It belongs to the universe and expresses itself through you. So in consideration of all this, let us grow in love, that is, from conditional love to unconditional love. Love is not a learning, but a growth. So we do not need to learn the ways of love, but we do need to unlearn all the ways of not loving. The hindrances do need to be removed, and when removed, then love reveals itself because it is our natural, spontaneous being. So to conclude, the world has become a very unhappy place. Not because the world is actually an unhappy place, but because we have introduced unhappiness into it by conditioning our love. Hatred is cold, passion or conditional love is hot, but unconditional love is cool. It is a state of great tranquility, calm serenity silence if we stay in the world of the limited in the world of conditionality we will never find God because he is limitless we will never find ourselves our true selves because we are limitless unconditional love will bring us into the presence of God and into the presence of our true self Consider, what do we want limited? Do we want limited security? Do we want limited freedom? Do we want limited happiness? Do we want limited wealth? Do we want limited love? Therefore, let our love be limitless by letting it be unconditional. And to love unconditionally, we must find something which is itself unconditioned. Now, what suffers no conditionality is our true self. That consciousness which lives in all that lives. And we think it is difficult to love unconditionally. In fact, it's the opposite. All our difficulties come from making our love conditional. To be is to love. To exist is enough to be able to love unconditionally. We just drop all our requirements. So ask ourselves, how do we wish to be loved? Secondly, should we in truth withhold our love from anyone? And thirdly, who are we to say, I will not give my love to that person or that I will limit it? It is not our love but a gift to us so that we may give it to others. So I'm going to finish with a quotation from Khalil Gibran which is beautiful. And is there aught you would withhold all you have shall some day be given therefore give now that the season of giving may be yours and not your inheritor's. You often say, I would give, but only to the deserving. The trees in your orchard say not so, nor the flocks in your pasture. They give that they may live, for to withhold is to perish. Surely he who is worthy to receive his days and his nights, is worthy of all else from you. And he who has deserved to drink from the ocean of life, deserves to fill his cup from your little stream. And what desert greater shall there be, than that which lies in the courage and the confidence, nay the charity of receiving. And who are you that men should rend their bosom and unveil their pride, that you may see their worth naked and their pride unabashed? See first that you yourself deserve to be a giver and an instrument of giving. For in truth it is life that gives unto life, while you who deem yourself a giver are but a witness. And you receivers, and you are all receivers, assume no weight of gratitude, lest you lay a yoke upon yourself and upon him who gives. Rather rise together with the giver on his flights as on wings, for to be over-mindful of your debt is to doubt his generosity, who has the free-hearted earth for mother and God for father." Unconditional love brings us to aloneness. The rich cannot go to God. We cannot go to God or truth with friends, with children, with spouse or with parents. Everybody has to go there alone. And unconditional love makes this possible. It's worth it and that's the end of the talk so thank you
1: so what would you like to ask Shane watched Watch observed a more than one but certainly one friend in a a relationship for many years a loving relationship and the friend of mine I would have seen as being um, their love being very loving very respectful I don't know if we go say unconditional only for some point down the road for their partner to leave them and I've watched incredible hurt and anger and disappointment and dismay in that person their love for that person looked pure and, and I'm wondering how do we view that or, or, or look at that then, is it to say that, you know, that person it wasn't unconditional and that's the source of why it, it didn't play out in, in life, or might you say about that?
0: Well, there's two aspects to it. Even if the love is unconditional, it doesn't mean that the other will return unconditional love to you, because that's a choice by each person. So the fact that the relationship came to an end is not proof that the love of the first person was not unconditional. But unfortunately, the pain and misery that came as a result of the ending of the relationship is proof that it was not unconditional. Now, in order that we may understand that, because we find that very difficult to grasp, if food is totally nourishing, it only provides health. It cannot provide health and ill health. If love is only pure, if it has no impurity in it, then it only yields happiness. And when love causes any sorrow at all, then it is because of impurity in it. What is the impurity that causes the misery? It is the demand to be loved in return. So it's not a gift, it's an exchange. I will love you, but the price is that you must love me in return. So it's not a gift. It's an exchange. And love is not an exchange. Love is free. It has no price. When you put a price on it, then you are often disappointed. If it's for free, it causes no harm to you. And so the secret is to give your love Not for what you may get in return, but for in the joy of giving. What is said about love is that it is its own reward. The one who loves is happy. Not necessarily the one who is loved in return. Sometimes if you went out on a date or two dates and the other person declares their love for you, you say, oh my God Almighty, oh and how do I get out of this? So, the fact that you are loved in return is not necessarily the product of happiness at all. The loving heart is happy, not the heart that is loved. So that's the key to it. Now, we find that very difficult, because we do not see Ourselves as complete. We see ourselves as incomplete human beings. So I need a wife or I need children or I need friends. And being in need of them, then I seek them and I demand that they make me happy. Most people in ordinary relationships have a little happiness thermometer with which they evaluate the relationship. So they stick in this little happiness thermometer and they think, hmm, not good enough. She's not trying hard enough, <laughs> right? Or she could try harder. And then you blame the other person. You say, you're not making me happy. And so the other person has to become some sort of performing flea, you know, <laughs> and learn a new dance or whatever it is to make me happy. But people are not there for your entertainment. But this is what we're doing all the time. We're looking at them and we're saying, you know, we're like headmasters. Could try harder. (laughs) Doesn't pay attention. (laughs) All these things. I've told this story before, but one man in the school, and he had this young daughter at the time, and he comes home from work, and it's been a hard day's work. But as he approaches the house, his young daughter is... At the window of her bedroom. And she sees her father. And she gets really excited and she's screaming. He can't hear the word, but he can, he can see her mouth moving. Screaming, daddy, 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 daddy. And she's obviously incredibly excited and she's waving to him. So he's absolutely uplifted. And he goes through the front door, expecting that she would now come bounding down the stairs to embrace him. But when he goes through the front door, there's absolute silence. So he goes upstairs to her bedroom, and she's playing with something. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he wanted more. He wanted an embrace and a hug. And You know, sometimes you measure hugs. You think, that was a bit short. You know? <laughs> or when the kiss becomes a peck, you think, what did I do? <laughs> yeah. So... There's all this dreadful measurement going on. Now, children don't do that. They don't think, well, now, How many times has my mother allowed me to feed off her today, you know? Children are not measuring at all because they enjoy unconditional love.
1: Thank you very much for that. For me personally, I'd say the closest I've ever come to unconditional love would be for my parents and a particular grandparent. And two of them I've lost through death along the way. And I've certainly cried and, and hurt at times. And you spoke of Leon McLaren and the effect his passing had on you. And, you know, all that was there for you was no tears but gratitude. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in my case, I'm sure many, many others would think that parents or whoever, whatever the situation would be, dad are, are as close as maybe we humanly possibly get to unconditional love. Why those tears and not just gratitude and Again,
0: this will sound harsh, and I I don't want it to sound harsh at all, because it's not really harsh. But when somebody dies, what happens is we don't think of them. We think of ourselves. We think of our loss. And it is a very natural thing that if we think of our loss, that we're upset about our loss. But when somebody dies, just think of what they've given you. Don't think of what you've lost, but what you've received. And then it's only gratitude. There's another way of helping it as well. That if you truly love the person, then you should honour them. And the way to honour somebody is to honour their wishes. So ask yourself, let's say your father died. Would my father wish me to be in misery on his departure? And if your father would not wish you to be in misery, then out of love for him, do not be in misery. And this is how to honour the dead. The fact of the matter is, when a person dies, we're so engrossed in our own state, we completely ignore the wishes of the departed or anything. So what's very important, anyway, is to only think of what you have been given and then to honour their wishes. And if you do that, well, grief will at least be minimised, if not eliminated. So, that's what I would say. Thank you very much.
2: We're talking about unconditional love. How much should that play a part when we're looking for our life partner or husband, in the sense that, should we let that take over are being practical, say, economic situation, or is that egoistic? What should we look out for?
0: Let's say I say that I love food, which is perhaps self-evident if you look at me, but anyway, (laughs) that I love food, right? And I go to a restaurant. I will still only pick certain items from the menu. I don't seek to eat every single item on the menu. Despite appearances. (laughs) I don't. Same way, let's say you say you love clothes. But when you go to a shop, there are certain clothes and colouring and style of clothes which suit your colouring, shape, your age, all that sort of stuff. So despite the fact that we have all the colours in the world and all sorts of different fashions, there are certain clothes which enhance your beauty or suit you or you enjoy them naturally, without any effort. We are to love all beings, but we don't have to live, we don't have to cohabit with all beings. So if we are going to, let's say, enjoy the married state, then we should find that partner whose nature and temperament suits and complements ours. That person who is easy to be with who brings out the best in us easily. There are some people that you'll find that you are naturally good-humoured when you're in their company. You're naturally kind, nice, all charming, all these things. And there are other people in their company you have to work very, very hard, even to be polite. (laughs) So, given that it's a 50-year relationship, and that there's lots of challenges, one should make it easy on oneself. One should work with Nature. Now I can't remember which way you do. It, whether you cut wood with the grain or against the grain, which is the correct way to do it, isn't he? All right. Okay. We're all ignorant on that one. But anyway, there's a way. Either you cut wood with the grain or against the grain. Let's say it's with the grain, and that makes it easy. So in nature, there's harmony and potential disharmony. So find a nature with which your nature is naturally harmonious. That makes it easy, and now you're loading the dice in your favour of an excellent relationship. The second thing is this, now this is very, very challenging, but it would be outstanding if we could do it. See most of us, when we do go looking for a partner, is we go looking for somebody that will make me happy. You know, we're standing in a bar or a nightclub or something like that, and we look at that person, no. They won't make me happy. No, not definitely. Not forget it. Still lives with his mother. Not a chance. (laughs) Right? And we reject all these people. And then we find somebody we think, hmm, maybe they could make me happy. So our motivation is totally selfish. What we need to do, the really glorious way to find a spouse for life, is to find somebody that we can make happy. To find that person that we draw out the best in. And find a person who thinks exactly like you. In the sense that they were looking for somebody that they can make happy. And if both people have the same outlook, now they both serve each other, or serve each other's happiness. And doing that they would have a glorious relationship. Because they're both looking to increase or enhance the happiness of the other party. And if both think the same, then it's just magnificent. So that's the real way to do it. Most of our relationships are based on an essential selfishness, which is unfortunate. As I said, we're looking for somebody to make us happy. And we have such petty requirements. What we do is we mark people. And it's a bit like doing your driving test. Three X's, and they're gone. They have to do the test again. And that's a terrible way to do it. Imagine if a child did that. Imagine if a child could speak and uh, the minute it came out of the womb and said, look, your mother needs to be blonde, needs to be, you know, an IQ of at least 125, needs to be kind-hearted, capable of getting out of the bed at one o'clock, two o'clock, three (laughs) o'clock and four o'clock. The baby makes no demands. I've used this, it's a humorous analogy, but it's so true as well. The baby loves the mother on the instant. And the mother also loves the baby on the instant. It doesn't take the mother three and a half years before she says, I think I'm beginning to bond with this little thing. It's there from the beginning. And why? Why does the baby love the mother on the instant? And the reason why is the baby has no standards, (laughs) right? It has no standards, and having no standards, it has no demands, no requirements. So, on the instant, you qualify to be loved unconditionally. Let's say I like cars, and let's say I have a car, we make it a Ford Mondeo, and somebody says to me, "Will i give you a Jaguar. Well, I would swap the Ford Mondeo for the Jaguar. And then let's say I get the Jaguar, and somebody says, there's a later model, you know, with Quadraphonic stereo or whatever it is, then I will swap that for that. But when you get a baby, and somebody said to you, look, we can swap it in the middle of the night for a better looking one, with a, with a brighter future, and nobody will know that the tags have been switched. You can't do it. Because you do not love by comparison. You love in itself. In itself. This is the marvellous thing about love between child and mother, or child and father. But the greatest human achievement is between two adults. The child parent one is easy peasy. You don't get any marks for loving children. But to be able to unconditionally love a hairy ever increasingly fat balding (laughs) entity that falls asleep on Saturday afternoon in front of the telly. That is outstanding. (laughs) That is an outstanding human achievement. So that is the greatest of them all. And as I said, when two people can unite like that for life, then they become great human beings. That's the marvelous thing about love. Love doesn't weaken you at all. It absolutely strengthens you. If you don't give your love to others, your heart becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. The real way to strengthen your heart is to give your love unconditionally. You can only break a weak heart. You can't break a strong heart. And the way to strengthen your heart is not to protect it, but to allow love to flow through it without limit. And then it is the strongest heart, and it can never be broken. So that's the answer. Thank you. Is
1: that okay? Now, Shane, you mentioned about bonding, or yeah. two friends, you bond them t- to be yours, and yeah. in that sense you limit it. Well, if I could just quote from Shakespeare, you know, yeah. Polonius' advice to his son Laertes, which I think is universally accepted as fairly sound advice, when
0: he said, and when you have made a friend, bond him to your heart with hoops of steel. One seems to contradict the other. I think that what Shakespeare meant was that friendship so strong that nothing can destroy it. It's in that sense, bind it. So unite it to your heart so strongly that nothing can get in the way. You know, sometimes children may say, I've got a best friend. And then they come home from school the next day and say, I hate them. (laughs) I hate them because they took my pencil when I wasn't looking. If you have bound somebody to your heart, then a pencil will not separate you. You other know the way when you read of a, you know, a marital breakdown in Hollywood because he squeezes the toothpaste from the wrong end or something like that? Mm. Then you know this is ridiculous. That something so small could separate two people. So I think it's in that sense that what Shakespeare is recommending that you really and truly unite. If you have a really, really, really good friend, it's a friend for life. You may not meet them for 40 years. You know, they may emigrate or something like that. But if you meet them, all the affection is there on the instant. And that's what real friendship is about. The real quality of friendship is that friendship is always between equals. So where you have two friends, you do not have a superior and an inferior role being played. Friends are equals. You never dominate a friend. It's only advice between friends. And the other wonderful quality about friendship is there are no secrets between friends. Because nothing can destroy real friendship. So you can say anything. You can say, where did you get your hair cut like that? (laughs) Right? You can say anything, because the friendship outweighs any of these little ripples. So I think it's in that sense that Shakespeare meant it. It only makes sense to me in that sense. Thank you.
3: Question really about giving love unconditionally, and say through childhood. Not everybody has the same childhood, for instance, we have yes. different childhoods Absolutely. and upbringings. So some people may have, you know, really good, loving childhood upbringings, and, and that affects the type of person they are as adults. Some people may have, say, emotionally distant parents, or mm. one parent who's really good and one who isn't, or who's yeah. is absent quite a lot. And that affects the boy as he becomes a man, it affects him mm. as, as a man, mm. uh, or the woman as, 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 as a woman. And to give love unconditionally under those circumstances would be a lot more difficult in that I'm sure a lot of, you know, doors would have closed and a lot of boundaries would have been grown up around that person and to, to give love unconditionally and not receive it back, say for instance, would be, could be crushing or, or completely destroying for that person. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about strategies, you said a few minutes ago in that giving love strengthens the heart rather yes. than weakening it. So it's practical strategies to actually do that and keep doing that and not give up doing that. You, you do strengthen your heart from, from that. Well,
0: it is possible to damage a heart, obviously, and it's possible to bruise a heart. And it's possible to harden the heart. Once you harden the heart, by the way, I'll just divert for a second, it becomes brittle. It's very easy to break a hardened heart. So you never harden your heart. Now, this is the tendency under ignorance. In order to protect my heart, I'm going to harden it so that I do not get bruised anymore. But the tragedy is you make it brittle and anybody can hurt you. You may not demonstrate your hurt, but you experience it. But you cannot destroy a heart. So no matter what the upbringing has been, no matter what appalling events has happened, no matter what offence has been taken or all of that, the heart can be restored to its full glory. So that's the first thing to realise. The past doesn't have to dominate the present. One may allow it to dominate the present, and it may press very heavily on the present. But it doesn't have to dominate. You are greater than your past. Any man can go, any man, woman, can go free of their past. But it may take a lot of energy and strength to do that. But they can go free. So that's the most important thing. The heart can be restored. And what is required, as I said, is with a child, you can bruise a child's heart. And it doesn't have the ability to reason its way through it. So it will suffer. I'm afraid it sounds terrible, but there's no way around it. But as an adult, you can reason your way out of that suffering. So, for example, if you are working in an organization, and let's say you have a boss, and the boss is very aggressive, it's possible to understand that that boss is simply aggressive because they lack confidence in their ability to lead the particular team. And knowing their low self-image it no longer affects you. The other simple example would be, you're in Dublin and you see a stranger in your city and they're turning the map upside down and sideways and they're they're saying they want to go to O'Connell Street but they're actually walking away from it. You overhear this. What naturally arises in relation to their ignorance is compassion. So unless you're very very busy in all of that and a very rude sort of human being You will go over them and say, by the way, I heard that you were looking to go to a Street and it's actually this way. In that situation, on meeting the ignorance of another, compassion arises for their ignorance, and you seek to help relieve them of their ignorance. Now, let's say then we have somebody, we're in a relationship, and the person is ignorant towards us. So despite all our love and kindness and patience and tolerance, they're just abusive to us. But they're in ignorance. That's the truth of the matter. They're in ignorance. They do not know how to use their hearts beautifully. Why do we not help them as we would help the stranger? And it's very simple. The reason why we are willing to help the stranger because his ignorance doesn't affect us. We're not hurt by the fact that he ends up in Dunbeerie as opposed to O'Connell Strait. <laughs> And not being affected in any way, the natural emotion to arise is compassion. The key for us as adults is not to be affected by how others behave to us. How we try to do that under ignorance is by hardening our hearts. I will not be affected. (laughs) I am not affected. So that doesn't work. The way to be not affected is to consider the state of the other. And I, again, I've used this analogy before. Let's say there's an offensive situation. There are actually two wrongdoings in an offensive situation. Is that okay? There is the giving of offence is a wrongdoing, and the taking of offence is a wrongdoing. In the taking of offence you create as much misery as you do when you give offence. It's very important. It's equally wrong in terms of creating misery in the world. We're always blaming the one who's giving it, but the one who takes it is creating as much misery in the world. And again, I've used this analogy before, but if I said to you, would you like a glass of arsenic? You would say no. And I will not be able to convince you to take arsenic because you can see no benefit To the taking of arsenic. So, as an adult, you have the capacity to reason. You can ask yourself, what is the benefit to me of taking offense? And the answer is zero. And in the same way, when you realize that unequivocally, that there is no benefit to you taking offense, you will stop taking it. And when you stop taking offense, your heart stays absolutely open. And fills with compassion for the ignorance of the person who's so-called abusing you. And then you seek to help relieve them of their ignorance. Now, then you are an outstanding human being. Because you are not a multiplier of misery in this world, but a reliever of misery in this world. That is fantastic. This is why it says that love transforms. I mean, love is outstanding. And I just take it at a very, very low level. But if you take, say, a modern estate, housing estate, and there's 200 houses, and nowadays they build them all the same. Maybe you get a different coloured door, that's about it. But people move into the house. And they begin to fall in love with their houses. And suddenly gnomes start to appear in the garden, (laughs) decking and lighting and, you know, all sorts of things. And everybody begins to transform their house. They give of themselves of their values and tastes to enhance the house. So this is what you can do as a human being. You can relieve people of their ignorance. You know what it's like when you are in a city and you are lost and somebody comes up to you and says, by the way you need to go that way. Do you know how grateful you are? Mm -hmm. How wonderful it is that somebody would take the time to relieve you of your ignorance. Now the one in ignorance may be so disturbed that they're not grateful initially. But if you restore them to love and happiness, they will be grateful. They will be grateful. But do not seek their gratitude. Do it for free.
1: Is that okay? Thank yeah. you. I just can't help
3: asking you, I hope it doesn't sound important, but I wonder how successful do you
1: think you are at not taking offence? That's a
0: terrible question to <laughs> how insulting hope you're not taking offense (laughs) it would be like this it's still a work in progress and it's dependent on my state it's not dependent on the person not dependent on how offensive they are or anything like that at all if this man is silent and still and at peace with himself and there is an abundance of energy in his being then love and reason tends to operate so no offence is taken but if one is agitated and full of greed and you know, all of that sort of stuff well then offence can be taken but the experience after many years of philosophy is this first of all it doesn't happen in any way as frequently as it used to and secondly if it does happen it's not as intense. And thirdly, it doesn't last any length of time. So that if offense is taken, very, very quickly afterwards, there's a realization that one has foregone one's own happiness. And there's a natural restoration of one's own peace or happiness. So, I just say this, but I found this extremely useful. This is about 15 to 20 years ago. I made a resolution in my life. A serious resolution. And that was that misery would not last more than five seconds. Ever. In this life. Three seconds was because I was Irish and sort of self-indulgent. right? <laughs> and the other two seconds was for reason or love to restore the happiness. So that's the rule for Shane Mulhall. So that when misery does arise, It is seen as a warning signal. Just like if you've got a pain in your chest. You take it as a warning sign that there may be a heart attack coming or something like that. So when misery floods into this heart, one takes it, not that the other person is doing something wrong, but that I'm making a mistake. I'm making a mistake. And one looks for the mistake. You look for the mistake, and very, very quickly, you can see that you're getting defensive. You're pretending to be open. You say, look, let's consider this. The truth of the matter, you've already decided what the right answer is. And so you resist people giving opinions which are contrary to it. What happens is, if you do this, you become very self-aware. And you begin to really understand this mind-heart mechanism and its little traits and all its little idiosyncrasies. So they no longer dominate, and you have ways to undo those traits, like anger or irritation or defensiveness or these sort of things. And interestingly enough, it's my experience of this journey of philosophy is that it's not that you're sort of pervaded by misery until you get to the end of the journey. It's a bit like, there have been times I have gone to Australia and New Zealand with the School of Philosophy, And I might have been there for four or five weeks. The interesting thing is, when I get on the plane to come home, even though I'm still, let's say, from New Zealand, up to 36 hours away, the happiness is already beginning to well in my heart. About returning home and being with family, etc., etc. I don't actually have to be at home before the happiness arises. I only have to be going home. And the philosophical journey, all that's important, is that you are on the journey. That you're not in a cul-de-sac and that you're not going towards Dunlary when you should be going to a college. As long as you're on the way, then you make no demands about a ride. That it should be now. That I should be free now. Just be willing to journey. So that's my experience.
2: Anyway, I think you've answered my question. All right. Before I came out tonight, I was in a kitchen full of love, seven grandchildren, two daughters. One daughter has two 13 year olds and an 11 year old. The 11 year old is making a whole Playmobil truck for the 3 year old. And I said to the mother, Milo is brilliant, isn't he? And she said, The three of them are brilliant. Exactly. You always single out Milo. I laughed at them. I told them all to go home.
0: Yes. Yes. Such is the power of unconditional love. Yes. (laughs) Well, you see, the interesting thing is this. What's most important is, if somebody makes, let's say, an accusation like that, have a look. Have a look. There's always the possibility that they've heard something in the sound of your voice which you cannot hear. When people say you're arrogant or you're lazy or you're something like this, always have a look. You don't have to accept it, swallow it unintelligently, but you quietly reflect on it. Why would a person say that? First of all, it's your daughter and she loves you. We take that for granted, that she loves you. So does she think, well, how am I going to insult my mother today now? (laughs) Not at all. Yet she made the comment, something drew that comment out of her. Now, it could be prejudice on her part, or it could be exaggeration on her part, but there could be a kernel, an element of truth to it. So it's always good to look. It is not particularly useful to say what you said. Do not say something like... What's the name of the child? Milo. Milo. Do not say Milo is excellent in the presence of the other two children. You can say, Milo is excellent at making Lego, whatever it is, for the child. Or you can praise the qualities, but do not make it that one person is superior to another person. Let's say if I take my four children. If I take Caroline, I can say to Caroline, your energy is outstanding. That fire and brightness and enthusiasm. I cannot say, Caroline, you are brilliant in the presence of Robert, Sarah and Jessica with the other three children. But I can say, your fire is just magnificent. And I can say to Sarah, your tenderness and equanimity is outstanding. And I can say that in front of Caroline, because it is true. That is one of her great qualities. So you can praise the qualities, and you should praise the qualities, and you should always praise the qualities of people. And don't just think it, you should say it. Say it out loud to the person. Because it helps draw it out of them. But don't speak as if one person is superior to another. What we're talking about is qualities. And ultimately, philosophically, the qualities do not belong to the person. The source of everything is either the creator or the self or consciousness. And these human forms are merely vehicles for their expression. So, if a fantastic speech comes through a mobile phone, don't praise the mobile phone. It is simply an excellent carrier for an outstanding speech without having any capacity for speech itself. So, if this girl has a wonderful, caring nature, and is capable of making things for uh, a, a younger uh, sibling, well then, praise that caring, expressing itself through her heart. She has been gifted with it. You try to acknowledge the source, rather than claim the source. This is what pride is. And again, if I just get somewhat religious about it, Lucifer thought that the life belonged to him. Now, that's like being an arrogant moon. It's an ignorant moon that would claim the light. If the moon said, oh, it's my light which brings so much love into people's hearts, that's an ignorant moon because it's a reflected light. The first thing when you praise the qualities is try, to the best of your ability, to remember the source. And secondly, do never compare, never speak of one person as superior to another but just praise their qualities. And everybody has something to contribute. Let's say in a room we have an accountant and a plumber and a, a surgeon. Well, if somebody gets a heart attack, we don't need the accountant or the plumber. If we have a leak, we don't need the surgeon or the accountant. In fact, you probably never really do need an accountant, when you think? <laughs> but they're just a waste of space, right? So we are all called upon and we are all needed at times and we all have talents to contribute to this great drama of life. But we're not superior one to another. The situation may demand great performance from us. But it's the situation. I'll say it like this. If we are to accept that Winston Churchill was an outstanding wartime leader, it was the war that allowed him to be such an outstanding leader without the war, he would have died largely unknown or whatever unremembered at this stage yeah. that 's the way to do it, just in relation to your daughter anyway, when the heat has died down from your system, <laughs> then just reflect on it, reflect and see is there any element of truth in it? My experience is that when people do make so-called negative comments to me that in silent quiet reflection. subsequently i find that they are all true without exception <laughs> all <laughs>
2: so just a short follow-on question from the the gentleman in front of me in relation to unconditional love and i take exactly what you're saying and i hear exactly what you're saying and we all strive for it and not to take offense but In relation to somebody in your life who's particularly difficult, not the person on O'Connell Street, the person you're dealing with all the time, not a life partner or not a partner, you're dealing with and you will be probably dealing with for a long time. It's very hard to love unconditionally, even though you want to for the sake of situation or life. How would you advise on that? You do well nine times out of ten, but at the tenth, you know, it can be difficult.
0: You just need to grow as a human being. Let's say you decide to join a gymnasium and you get a trainer, a personal trainer, so-called. What they'll do is they will give you weights that demand <coughs> exertion from you. If they give you tiny little things, which you just do this with, right, you won't gain any strength because it's not demanding anything of you. If you do enjoy the company of somebody on a very frequent basis who is challenging you, what they're doing is they're challenging your limits. They're actually telling you where your limit is. So they are highly educational to you. If you were just surrounded by nice people, you would never find out anything about yourself. But when you surround yourself with appalling people, you find out exactly how kind, nice, tolerant, peaceful, forgiving, compassionate you are. So they are fantastic educators, right? And literally one should be grateful for them. because. If you didn't have a person like that in your life, you would never develop tolerance, patience, forgiveness, and compassion. And imagine having a heart that didn't have those qualities. You wouldn't want that heart. However, to make this absolutely practical, and not just nice and charming, (laughs) this is what the Shankaracharya says, that nothing is ever put in your way that you cannot transcend or defeat. So there is no event which is bigger than the human being. When we lose confidence in that, we say, oh, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm fed up with the tape. Is that okay? So the first thing is do not abandon that truth. That you are bigger than the event or the insult or whatever. It may demand more of you, but you do have it. So what you may find is that you give 90% of yourself to the situation and then you explode. But if you gave a hundred percent, you'd be fine. So it's really telling you that you need to give more. Now, if you do give more, you will grow in strength. So, if you go to the gym and the first day at the gymnasium, you have these little yoke moves, After about six weeks, you'll be lifting much bigger weights because use develops strength. But if you say to me, I don't have the strength, It simply means that you have lived life to date, under-utilizing your heart. If you had, or do utilize it more and more and more, you will grow and grow in strength. And that which used to distress you, or disturb you, or debilitate you, will no longer. And as that happens, as you begin to grow and grow and master more and more events that befall you, you gain this outstanding confidence in yourself and when you gain this outstanding confidence in yourself then fear starts to pull away from your life and you wake up in the morning and it makes no difference what the day is going to present to you and that's what the child is like the child doesn't think oh for god's sake what might happen today but we're like that we're kind of fearful it's a wonderful thing to be called upon to use all your strength because you will become stronger And as I said, becoming stronger, you will gain confidence in yourself. Gaining confidence in yourself, you will have no fear. And having no fear, you will have a wonderful adventurous life. Thank you very much. Okay. I just
1: want to ask a question. How do you move from your egotistical state to an unconditional love? Are there steps you can take? Is there tapes you can listen to? Are there books that you can read?
0: In the end... A talk such as this, or a book, or a tape, provides a certain inspiration or impulse to do something. But if you then don't take it up, nothing happens. It's a bit like a tan. You get a love tan and it fades two weeks later. You can do it many ways, but I'll just give you one way. Now, you need to reflect on this, or take a long walk, and you ask yourself, for whose sake is this life? Is it for me? Is it for me and mine? Or is it for all? Now, if you were able to answer that it is for all, then naturally your attention goes to the welfare of others. Whether they have a particular connection or apparently no connection with you. And when your attention goes to others, then love naturally grows in the being. Love is always directed outwards. It originates from deep within, but it has only one direction, and that is outwards. So when you decide that your thoughts, words and deeds are for all, then you will be enacting love, and in enacting love, you strengthen in love. When you dress in the morning, for whose sake do you dress? The rest of us have to look at you all day. (laughs) (laughs) But for whose sake do you dress? Now, you can dress for yourself. And you can dress for others. A wedding is essentially for the bride and the bridegroom. It is their day. And if that is what is in your heart, you dress in honour and affection for them. If you're egotistical, you compete ...with the bride, particularly, you know... ...and, you know, by having a better outfit or whatever it is. So you can dress for others. It can all be for others. Everything can be for the sake of another. And if the heart is directed outwards... ...it is always happy. It is always, always happy. This is the marvellous thing about love... ...is that love is its own reward... The one who loves is happy. The Shankaracharya, the man that the school put all its questions to, one of the things he said, when considering an action, see if you can enlarge the numbers who may benefit from the action. So consider, can more benefit from it? And if you do that, you will find that love will naturally grow. And it's really as simple as that. So, is that okay? That's great, thank you very
2: yeah, much. No problem. Thank you, Shane. Shane, there are two parts to my question. The first is it's so easy to love somebody unconditionally when things are going well and they're nice people, etc. But when things are rocky, I mean, it's difficult to love somebody unconditionally then. Yes. And the second part is when there's mistrust or anger towards somebody, it's very difficult to love them unconditionally. So is it possible when there's mistrust? The well,
0: the first thing is, it is not true that one loves a person unconditionally when things are going well. What one is loving is things going well. <laughs> 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 so, so, this is why Jesus said, it has been said that you love your friends and hate your enemies. But he says, that's not love at all. You get no marks for loving people who are very nice. There's no marks for that. That's not a test of anything. It's like people feeling very secure when they have lots of money. That's not a test of security. At all. The thing about unconditional love is that it is unconditional love. It's not determined by whether things are going well or going badly. You are acting for the welfare of the other. Whether the other is returning love or as being nice or not, is completely irrelevant. And this is just a professional situation. But if you take a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist doesn't treat a patient better or worse, depending on whether the patient likes the psychiatrist or not. The patient doesn't have to uh, declare any affection for the psychiatrist to get total care. The interest of the psychiatrist is the mental and emotional welfare of the patient. So even if the patient says, I hate you and you're useless, the psychiatrist will say, now let's look into that. (laughs) (laughs) So that the person may understand their own hatred of the psychiatrist and thereby be free of it. When we love, we want to be rewarded for our love. So if you're running a a restaurant and you serve food, you want to be rewarded for serving that food. You want to be paid. And in ordinary, common relationships, we want to be paid. We'll be paid for our love, with a return of at least equal affection, and a little bit more wouldn't go astray. I'm happy to receive an extra bit, as long as it doesn't put pressure on me then to return even more still. So, that's what we do. We're always looking for the return. Now, if you take something like a gift, it is possible to give a gift and not look for the thank you. You know, when you do give a gift and you watch the person, like an eagle or a vulture, as they open it, and you want them to look into your eyes as they see inside the box, because you want to evaluate. And then you judge that. You judge the look in their eye, and whether they say thank you, or thank you very much, or thank you very, very much. And if they say thank you very, very, very much, you don't believe them. So, it's important not to use too many veries, just enough to convince them that you really love that pullover with the diamonds on it. Well, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the return gift. Now, a child, particularly a child, can make a present for his mother. And it gives it to the mother. And the joy of the child is in the giving of the present. That's what true love is all about. That you wish to love another so that another's life may be enriched by your love. Not that you may be enriched, but that they may be enriched. And if you do that, there is an automatic enrichment of your life because you have not sought it, you get that enrichment. If you do seek it, You don't get it. So it's nothing to do with things going well or rocky. And the truth of the matter is, there is no such life which is devoid of rocks. All lives have smooth bits and rocky bits. And the test of love is whether your love remains constant, whether smooth or rocky. You get some people and they get a flu. They get the flu. And they become less loving when they have the flu. I can't possibly love you as much. My nose is blocked. This is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. If a child is born into the family, you don't say, well, I was hoping for a little blonde. The fact that it's a brunette means it'll be partial love now. Or, why doesn't it have my IQ? You know, and not its mother's. (laughs) So that I was hoping for a more intelligent one and because it's as thick as two short planks I can't possibly love it. So it's not like that at all. Love is unconditional. The key is to find that love. Love is so perfect that its only fruit is happiness and satisfaction. So if love has ever caused you distress, that is proof positive that there was something other than pure love there. If you eat food, and at the end of the meal, you feel satisfied and full of energy, and bright and light, you can take it that that food was nourishing. If you're doubled up with cramps, and and thinking, I have to go to bed for a fortnight, you can take it that there was something in the food other than nourishing factors. There was also a poison. And the poison in the food is what is causing the distress. Now, even if food is 95% nourishing and 5% poisonous, you are going to suffer. And if love has any conditionality in it, that conditionality makes you suffer. So, to the degree that your love is conditional is the degree that you suffer. When a person says, He broke my heart. This is not true. What broke the heart was conditionality. Which is my conditionality. And our conditionality is awful stuff. And I've used these analogies before, but I still smile at them because they're so true. But you start off with unconditional love. You don't demand, as I said, that your mother is beautiful or intelligent or anything at all. You just love her. And the same with your father and... And that's very nice. But when you come to let's make it fifteen or sixteen and you're looking for love, you 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 would like somebody to love you, you form a list in your mind that you think, well he better not be called Aloysius. Right? <laughs> Simon, Clark, Kent, any of these sort of things. Excellent. Aloysius is not on at all. If he is, I'm going to call him Al. Right? And And you want them to be a certain height, and you want all sorts of things, and certain looks, and all that sort of stuff. So it's all conditional. Let's say we are on this incredible hunt for the partner, (laughs) and we're introduced to a prospective one. We do a quick evaluation. There's what there is, there's the person there, and there's a little uh, list (laughs) (laughs) to the left. And it's a bit like doing a driving test. And three exes, and actually I'm busy tomorrow night, and and the night afterwards. It's dreadful stuff. And and by the way, there's a very big price paid for this. If people enter into relationships from an early age, and then they marry at a reasonably late age, i.e. they have many years of relationships, their life is proceeding on preference and rejection. So let's say a person starts dating at 15, and let's say they marry at 25. They have 10 years of preference and rejection. And then they get married. And all those patterns of preference and rejection are firmly established in the heart. And so by the end of the honeymoon, you're beginning to wonder. (laughs) And think, this is going to be hard work. (coughs) Such pity.
1: My question is, is the journey towards unconditional love essentially an unconscious one? In other words, if you're consciously taking steps towards unconditional love, is that ego-driven and therefore contradictory?
0: Well, that's a very good question. It may start off as ego-driven. If a person is less than fully wise, the ego is in their being and does influence their being or dominate their being. So it is possible to be interested in becoming wise from an egotistical point of view. However, if you come under the guidance of a true system, despite your egotistical initial motivation, the practices will, on a continuing basis, attenuate or dissolve the ego. So albeit you start the journey with an ego motive, because of true practice the motive becomes more and more pure. And in the end, it becomes obvious that you're no longer doing this for yourself. So that's the way it works. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. You were talking there about being satisfied.
1: Now, does that mean being satisfied giving love or satisfied receiving love? Because I feel it can be the ego being satisfied. I'm not satisfied anymore. It's just like the ego. And then it feels also like, It's with a condition, you know, if I feel satisfied, I can love you more.
0: It is satisfied in the giving of your love. It's not related to being satisfied in the receipt of love. The satisfaction arises in the giving of love. It cannot be the ego, because the ego is never satisfied. Never, ever, ever satisfied. It is continuously hungry for more. And if I give a very simple example... Many, many years ago, when I was a young man, I was offered a lift in a Rolls Royce. And I was about 27 years of age and driving a Fiat 124 or something like this. And I sit in this Rolls Royce and from a transportation point of view, this is heaven itself. Heaven itself. The smoothness, the power, everything, just great. So I made a decision that one day I will own a Rolls Royce. So anyway, I got to about 35 or 36, and I bought a second-hand Rolls Royce. And it was fantastic. Because, I don't know whether you know but Rolls Royce don't have rev counters. Nothing as crude as a rev counter, <laughs> right? <laughs> and if you put your foot to the ground, the thing just accelerates. There's no sound. It just goes... So, it's it's engineering at its very best. And for a while, I deluded myself, thinking I am now totally satisfied from a motor vehicle point of view. Because I have the best car in the world. So I'm a satisfied man. I thought it was excellent. Until one day I had to bring the car to be serviced. And the very clever... Salesman said, by the way, we have the latest model in. Would you like to sit in it? So I sat in the latest model. And I wanted it. (laughs) I'm afraid that's the way it is. So, it's a bit like that. If you marry somebody and it's ego-based, after about 20 years of marriage, you want the latest model. (laughs) So... (laughs) and so you have to become a classic if you're to be retained (laughs) the point to understand is that the ego is never satisfied it may be temporarily satiated if the ego eats food and it eats to a certain amount there's a temporary satiation where you don't want any more food but rest assured four or five hours later you want more So the ego is never satisfied. The only thing that it can be satisfied is that which is complete. And that which is complete is yourself. And love is a representation of yourself. That is why love itself is complete. Does that help at all? Okay,
4: thanks.
2: If somebody has conditional love, and you said that if someone tells them they love them, they'll automatically think that they're mixed up with something. They don't believe us.
0: Not because of what they're saying, but because of your own self-image. If you tell a child, I love you, it accepts it. If you tell an adult, I love you, they look at you. <laughs> <laughs> they doubt it. So
2: it's, it's you that they doubt, or themselves?
0: They doubt themselves. Because they doubt themselves, they doubt you. If you take a deep look at your own ego, what you find is appalling characteristics in it. And you think, my God, if they really got to know me, they wouldn't love me. It's a bit like in employment. People think, if my boss knew what I thought about most of the day sitting at the desk, he'd fire me. Or, if the insurance company knew how much I dreamt while I drive, they wouldn't insure me. (laughs) We have a self-image. We look at ourselves in a particular way. It's not how we started off, by the way. No child, no matter whether it's Quasimodo with one eye in the centre of its forehead, can look in the mirror and say, I am ugly. That is an impossible statement from a very young child. But when you get to be about 14 or 15... You don't even want to look in the mirror. You think, wasn't God cruel? Why did he give me my father's nose? (laughs) Why does genetics have to work? So none of us can look in the mirror without criticism. And none of us can look at our mind without criticism. None of us can look at our heart without criticism. But the child sees itself as perfect. And in seeing itself as perfect, it sees itself as totally lovable. And so when you tell it, you love it, it says, very reasonable. You <laughs> know, because I'm totally lovable.
2: So when you said that Mr. McLaren taught you he was the main teacher yes. of unconditional love. How did he develop that relationship with you?
0: Well, it wasn't necessarily with me. It was how he lived. The basic thing is he showed no preference. And he never pulled a punch if you needed a punch. It was always delivered for your spiritual, mental, physical and emotional welfare. And if I say it like this, which is only a a certain representation of the, the greatness of this man, and I've told it before, but when I was asked to be head of the School of Philosophy in Ireland, I thought there might be a leader's book, you know, which would be about at least maybe six volumes long with hundreds of pages, telling you how to deal with all sorts of situations when you're running a school of philosophy. There is no such book, and there are no such instructions. But he gave me an instruction. He said, you may have no friends. That was it. That was the entire instruction. You may have no friends. I left his room, I went up to a bedroom, I lay on the bed, and I reflected on this. What could that mean? Now, using Jack and Jill logic, It was very obvious that it couldn't mean that I had to make everybody in the school my enemy. I had achieved that partially anyway. So, (laughs) But but it wouldn't have made any sense. What I determined that it meant was that I could have no preferences. And when that realisation came into my mind, I broke out into a cold sweat. I literally sweat poured down my face and down the inside of my shirt, the collar of my shirt. Because what came to mind were all the people that I didn't like in the School of Philosophy, of which there were vast, vast numbers. But <laughs> that bit's not true. But there were a number of people. And up to that point in time, if I went into the refreshment room, I would seek out those people that I really liked. And they're the people that I would talk to. Well, if you are attempting to embody the philosophy of the School of Philosophy, which is that all are one, then it is not possible to show preference to one over another. You have to show unconditional love to everybody. And that's what he did. So I thought I should try and do that.
2: You're said your love
0: for him is the greatest
2: of all, but he didn't have one person. His love was the same for everybody.
0: think so you will never reach that place where... Are you implying that I haven't? (laughs) Well, what I am happy to do First of all, I know that it is attainable Of that I can say with 100% confidence It is attainable And it will come to pass If I apply myself 100% And if I don't, it won't So it's as simple as that it is, as I said, attainable, and it will be determined by the endeavours here. It will not be determined by the niceness of the people in the school of philosophy, or in the world, or anything like that. It will be determined by whether this being, this body-mind-heart amalgam, applies itself to the dissolution of limits on its love. And how can I say that? Because in my experience, which is now 35 years or so in the school of philosophy, The system of philosophy which the Shankaracharya has given us is complete. It works. It takes the human being from conditional love to unconditional love. It takes the human being from ignorance to knowledge, from partiality to totality. It works. And so I know that if I or you or anybody follows this system and works all the way, you will come to the completion of the human journey. So okay, it. thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Shane.
4: I went for a walk with my son this morning, seven and a half, and you're asking about the unconditional love. He love the man, he loved the woman, he love the dog, he love everything.
0: Yes, exactly. And
4: it's fabulous, and it is lovely. Really However, as a parent, you don't want them to do that because it makes been very vulnerable. And to unconditionally love when those around you don't unconditionally love, can leave you in a very difficult <coughs> state. And as adults, if we were to try and practice this unconditional love, and those around us don't, the rational mind, it, for me, is saying, that
0: leaves me vulnerable, that leaves you in a difficult
4: place, because others won't can take advantage. So how do you balance that?
0: Alright, okay. Now well, I'll just do it in, in adult terms, first mm-hmm. of all. It cannot make you vulnerable, because To love unconditionally takes great strength of heart. A weak heart cannot love unconditionally. Only a very, very, very strong heart can love unconditionally. And you cannot exploit the strong. Love does not make you blind. It does not make you stupid. Love is remarkably intelligent. You can not say, I love everything, so I'll have equal amounts of arsenic as well as apples. Because you know the effect of arsenic. But you don't have to hate arsenic. You don't have to withdraw your love from it. You just don't take it. And in the same way, it is not valid to hate the criminal. Or to hate the paedophile. Or to hate the abuser. Or hate anything. That's not valid at all. Because you will suffer by having hatred in your own heart. And the one who is being hated is in no way helped. To transcend whatever problems they have. So, out of love for someone, you may send someone to jail. Out of love for them. Out of love for them, you may not cohabit with them. Because it doesn't bring out the best in them. It's not useful to them. We've got to be very uh, careful that love is not nice. Or it's not only nice. The surgeon, in loving the patient, can still saw off the leg if it's full of gangrene and make no apology out of love. It is absolutely valid to protect your child, and since a child does not have access to reason, in fact, you have a duty of care and protection until the child is capable of reasoning for itself. So you would never abandon that, but you would never encourage a child to withdraw It's love from anybody or anything. So it is valid to say that criminality is abhorrent, but the criminal is not. The question you ask yourself is, would you like to have criminal tendencies? Would you like, let's say, that your heart was so hard that you could beat a horse? Would you like to have that heart? The answer is no. You wouldn't wish to have such a heart. So when you see somebody who has developed that capacity, whose heart has hardened to such an extent that they can beat a horse, then what happens is a natural compassion arises. And if you're in a position to do something, and only if you're in a position to do something, then you help to melt that person's heart again so that they cease to beat horses. But you never hate them and you never withdraw your love for them. This is not a right of yours to say, I will love here, but not there. To reduce it to duty is terrible, but I'll do it. You have a duty to love all. Say I was given a Ferrari as a present. Which is not as good as a Rolls Royce, by the way, to go back to the But let's say I was given a Ferrari. And this Ferrari has the capacity to do 200 miles per hour. Now, ignore speed limits and all those sort of restrictions. Let's say I keep the Ferrari for 20 years, and all I do is I drive it up and down the driveway. So I get it into reverse, I go 20 yards down the drive, now achieving 6 miles per hour. Then I apply the brakes and I bring it back up to the garage again. And so I only ever get into first gear and reverse, and no more than 6 miles. And at the end of 20 years, there's 2.6 miles up on the Ferrari. And let's say I tell somebody, by the way, I have a Ferrari, and this is how I use it. The person would say, that's a disgrace. What a waste. What a waste to be given a Ferrari with that capacity, and you only utilise it in such a mean and miserable way. Now, you have been given a Ferrari of a heart. A heart that is capable of loving the entire universe. Not just human beings, but every creature, every form. Love every tree, flower, stone, everything. And to use it to love five or six people and a dog and a budgerigar.
4: <laughs> you know?
0: And then to cry when the budgerigar is found with its legs up in the, in the cage. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. It's a denial of your human capacity and potentiality. When a child comes into the world, it does not come in with a fully developed mind, but it does come in with a capacity for unconditional love. So that is fully formed already. Isn't that magnificent? That you don't have to grow. It's there. Now, it naturally expresses itself with mother, father, and children. And what the Shankaracharya says is that if not impeded, it will expand from family To friends, to school, to society, to nation, to humanity, to the universe. It will all happen naturally. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is to make sure there are no impediments stopping this natural expansion. So as a parent, you should encourage your child to love everybody and everything unconditionally. That's it.